0: Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. We explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world. In the light of Sola Scriptura and Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of Westminster Effects, Go buy your pedals at westminstereffects.com and make sure you join
1: the group. Uh, and, well, I guess join the discussion. I can never do the beginnings and endings. Of- join the discussion at the Westminster Taxology <laughs> Podcast Lounge on Facebook.
0: And support the show at anchor.fm. Subscribe and comment on Facebook and Instagram. You know how all that stuff goes. Uh, joining
2: me in person we have... Hey, everybody. It's Bradley Cox, pastor of Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina.
0: And uh, also, uh, we have our first studio
2: audience. Yes. Live studio audience. My son, Thomas, is sitting in today. He's hanging out with me today. Just just yell a quick hi, Thomas. Hi. There he
1: is. (laughs) Uh, And via the interwebs, as usual. Hey, everybody. John Ross here, Westminster Effects artist, and Christian, apparently um, blossoming uh, lover of economic literature. From Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's a perfect tee-up for our special guest today. Uh, also via the internet, we have uh, one Jerry Boyer. Hi, Jerry. What's up? Hey,
3: um, um not much, except I'm uh, happy to be here uh, talking to you guys, um, including a lover of economic literature. Yes, absolutely. Well, you, you, made me, literature. you made me I'm that way, so let's who talk who, about that. Say again? You made me that way.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it took about four hours of, of well, probably a lot more of your time up front, frankly, but it took about four hours of my time. Um, and and we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, the uh, uh, the book that I think we're talking about today, the maker versus the takers. Um, it was was an eye opener for me. So I, I love I'd love to get to get into this.
0: Yeah, same here. So, uh, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself and then
3: we'll dive right in. Uh, my name is Jerry Boyer. I'm an economist. Uh, the head of Boyer Research, which does economic consulting, Um, husband of Susan, father of seven, grandfather of one, um, deacon, Um, and, uh, you know, sometime writer, speaker. I have a lot of juggling that I do, a lot of things that I keep in the air, but my day job is economic consulting. Very cool. Very cool. Um, So we brought you on to talk about
0: your relatively released, relatively recently released, so many R's. Uh, Are you okay? Do we need to to send help? (laughs) I'm having 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 an an aneurysm. I don't know what's going on today. Uh, The maker versus the taker is what Jesus really said about social justice and economics. Um, Obviously, that buzzword, social justice, will pique some curiosity. Uh, among our listenership, um, why did you write this thing, and how did it all come together?
3: Uh, I wrote it because I was nagged into writing it by a friend of mine who's in publishing. Um, I didn't want—I <laughs> didn't want to write a book. Writing books is hard work. Uh, it's hours and hours, and uh, writing books is is one of these things where. Like the last ten percent is really the last ninety yeah. percent. you know all of that. check this footnote and know is that the right font and i mm. yeah' been through some of that stuff before, and uh so I didn't want to write the book because it was work. I also didn't want to write the book because um I really loved these ideas, and I was afraid about how they would be received. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's like painful if I write something and it's like, Hey, this is something that's not close to my heart. I'm doing some economic analysis and someone likes it. They like it. If they don't, they don't. Yeah. But this was like, uh kind of a core project for me uh, and, and my wife We actually do most of our research together, uncovering what Jesus thought about economics. And we, and we did it from the standpoint of this isn't going to be a book. This isn't going to be, this is just, we want to know what Jesus mm-hmm. actually, taught about economics. I just really want to know. I don't I'm not going to preach it. I'm not going to teach it. I'm not going to go on the road and do lectures about it. I just want to know. So when you do something like that, from that kind of motive, then there's like a real sense that what if it falls flat? That's going to hurt. Um, And uh, so those that's why I was resisted the book. Um, But my friend just kept at it. Uh, So we ended up doing the book and it was, you know, uh, it was received well. Um, the reviews are uh, good reviews. I think I had one negative comment from an academic um, in response to Pastor Doug Wilson's endorsement of the book. Um, little, <laughs> it's that you know, Doug
0: Wilson derangement syndrome, right? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, I guess because he endorsed it, or because you know, because it because it came from a non-academic. I'm in the marketplace. Mm. You know I, I, you know, I don't work in universities. I mean, I'll lecture in a university once in a while, but that's far from my base of operations. Yeah. So I, I, we, we did the research because we wanted to know. We wrote the book with trepidation. It uh, turns out a trepidation that was unjustified. You
1: right. know, arguably, the best way to, to go into the adventure of writing a book is to have the publisher tell you. To write a book, rather than you trying to find a publisher to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to publish this body of work you've written, um, one uh, one interjection is you mentioned you didn't set off to create a like a like a textbook or uh, some grand novel, and it's written that way. the 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 chapters, if you will, flow from one into the next, where it's it, it's one uh, coherent, uh, almost narrative, uh, and I really appreciated that.
3: Uh, yeah, it's a story from the birth in, Bethleh- birth in Bethlehem to the destruction of Jerusalem. 100%. Yeah, just in chronological order. Here's the, mm-hmm. here's how this, like a zip file. Here's um, here's um, Jesus' birth circumstances. Here's his, actually before, before Bethlehem, um, um, Mary's pregnancy. Here's mm-hmm. Mary's economic philosophy. Looks like her son Jesus picks up the same economic philosophy. He teaches it. People, he teaches it in a subtle way. Uh, because he wants his ministry to last three years rather than three minutes, um, and if he really shows how critical he is of of the exploitative, essentially the deep state exploiting the rest of the nation, uh, they'll kill him. So uh, eventually, he he gets a whole lot clearer, and they kill him. Mm. Um, and they not only do they kill him, but they try to kill his message and they reject his message, um, in in his economic message. And it leads to the further economic degradation of Jerusalem, um, and which over a period of forty years leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, led by two economic events. One is a ta- one is a um, a debt revolt, which Jesus warned them about. And then the real trigger is a tax revolt, which you know they tried to trap Jesus on taxes, um, and Jerusalem uh, is destroyed. So it really is a story. If I were if I were a better writer, I'd try to write it as a novel. But you know like. the. I, I'm still waiting for the feature film.
1: Uh, somebody, somebody call Kirk Cameron. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I think what I really want, another piece that I really appreciated was just the depth of the historicity in it. Um, I uh, I sent Cody a message yesterday. I was like, you know what? For for a numbers guy, this guy's a pretty solid biblical historian. Like it, it, there were light bulbs going off in my head that. I'd never even considered, and I'd been in the church since birth. Uh, and the, uh, uh, for instance, um, when we talk about uh, this is earlier on in the text, I think uh, maybe maybe just about a quarter of the way in, you mentioned about how it's foolish that if we consider that Jesus' body grew, but his mind didn't grow as well, and that is a heresy. A, a um, uh, it's one of those isms, Apollinism. Apollinism, I believe, is is is. What, There's
3: a docetism, which is, is not really human.
1: Yeah, there was right? that
3: like that Apollinarianism. The Apollinarianism. becomes divine, right? That's right. And
1: and you know, obviously, you know, that was something that was that I always took for granted. Well, of of course, 100 percent man, 100 percent God, fully human, fully God. Um, but the logical conclusions of that are something that I never really even explored cognitively until i read it in your book and i was like wow you know he was the spotless lamb of god but he was also heavily influenced by his mother following the commandments honor thy father and mother which he certainly did right and and the it, gospel takes
3: brought the, the humanity
1: text made- it, it brought the humanity to Christ in a way that I've never seen done before.
3: Well, yeah, the the, so the, the, pro, the problem that we have as conservative Christians um, is that, you know, the generations just before your generation after me, the generation bef- before me and the, and the generation before that one was contending with liberalism. And liberalism was, because they used to all, all be in the same denominations for the most part, and so they're struggling with one another. And liberalism was denying the humanity of Jesus in order to assert his divinity, um, his deity even, a stronger form of the, of, of the doctrine. So what that meant is any discussion of his humanity kind <laughs> <laughs> For, for, <laughs> <And he>, John, <laughs> so we have uh, another character. All right,
0: John's cat just—is uh, he—is <laughs> he actually on you or is he just behind you?
3: Oh, that's on my chair.
0: Okay. Yeah.
3: Well, we, so we were talking about Bethlehem <laughs> and the animals being present, and he's like, "I want you know, I, I want in on this." I. Um, so. John's
2: <laughs> building an ark. There's, there's, there's one in the backyard. Hey, 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 I'm not. I'm not
1: saying anything, but uh, next time, uh, next time you're at the old Walmart. Might as well pick up an umbrella, you know what I'm saying? A
3: <laughs> uh, 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 pro tip. So um it's it's almost like any discussion of the humanity of Jesus got liberal cooties on it. Mm-hmm. That if yeah. you talk about if you talk about the humanity of Jesus, if you talk about the historical Jesus, that's a trigger. And understandably so. Um, you know, from Albert Schweitzer on, all of the quests for the historical Jesus are let's shove the gospels aside and let's find out what really happened. Right. Like the Jesus but, seminar type of stuff, mm-hmm. Jesus seminar. Yeah. And there's just a whole, but first quest, second quest there's, there's, there's like a hundred years of this that of which the Jesus seminar is like the, you know, the rotten fruit at the end of the maturation of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, So historical Jesus stuff, that must be liberalism um, because it's trying to get past the gospels. Whereas I'm trying to get at the historical Jesus through the Gospels. This is that these are the eyewitness infallible accounts, but that doesn't mean we can't learn historical context. Um, But there was, again, there was a sense that if you do that, that's suspicious. And now I was taught, I mean, the the name Westminster suggests to me kind of where you're coming from. I was taught that you're supposed to use the grammatical historical um, method of exegesis. Um, But what, I found in reality is it was almost all grammatical and almost no historical. So people mm-hmm. who say you use grammatical historical, <laughs> they spend a lot of time with the lexicons, but they're not really spending, in my experience, that much time with the historical context. So I just want to live, I just want us to actually practice grammatical historical. Mm-hmm. Uh plus there's something else. And so I don't fault earlier generations of saints for not seeing this, um, because Luther didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, Um, he probably didn't have Josephus or Philo, Um, nobody before 1980 had hardly any biblical archaeological um, information about Galilee because we'd hardly done any digging there. So just like, you know, in the the 15th century, we rediscover the Greek texts of the Gospels and Luther can look and say, oh, it says repentance here, not penance, and get a real revolution going. Um, and just like a hundred years later, we discover the Hebrew texts and then in the Dutch Calvinists kind of rebuild the idea of political liberty from a better understanding of the, of the Hebrew, the Torah base, basis of, of, of the Gospels. Just so what happened in the middle of the last century and what happened with a lot of digging, 1980, 90, you know, in the past 40 years has to shed light on what it means to say that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, where he was growing in wisdom and stature, eating Galilean food and learning Galilean ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, one of one of the really fascinating uh, things about this, well, not even fascinating, but also common sense at the same time, it's just like all these things kind of click together, is you make a point that all of the details matter, like every name every geographical region, and, and you even go on to say that Jesus only calls out the rich people in Gal or not in Galilee, he doesn't call them out in Galilee, he does call them out in Judea,
3: Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Uh,
3: and, and there's a very specific reason for that. Because Galilee was a largely entrepreneurial economy, um, it was a lower tax economy, um, it was a small business economy, it was a relatively decentralized economy. Um, whereas Judea was the crony capital. Um, it was the, you know, it's the Washington, D.C. Um, of its time. It's the Rome, whatever. Um, and it had a corrupt permanent ruling class um, and their hangers on. Um, and they used that political um, influence and political access. They, they used pull in order to get wealthy. So Jesus confronts wealth a lot in Judea especially in Jerusalem, but he never confronts any wealthy people in Galilee. Well, that's because Galilee was poor and there weren't any wealthy people. Wrong. Um, Galilee was not poor. Uh, That's something made up by, you know, by liberal theologians in the 70s. Um, They wanted a Jesus as a Che Guevara, as a Fidel Castro, so they just said that Galilee must have been poor and Jesus was leading a peasant revolt. But they they, they they dug them up now. We have reasonable guesses as to which house was Jesus's or what we have houses in Nazareth. They're pretty nice houses. There's a new book recently um, by Ken Dark pointing, pointing out a house um, uh, in Nazareth, uh, good candidate for Jesus's house. It has sophisticated design, a kind of a lower story, upper story. It has good stonework. Uh, Because he would have been a stonemason, because tectons were stone and wood. Um, They worked with both of them. And it was an upward rising area. So there were wealthy people. In fact, an hour and a half walk away, there's Sepphoris, the jewel of Galilee, Josephus called it, which was quite wealthy. We've got the mansions with, you know, with frescoes. Mm -hmm. There's a famous painting called the Mona Lisa of Sepphoris, you know, with a a woman who's kind of has a smile. Expensive stuff. But it was a trading center. So what would happen is all these farmers, like a lot of olive farmers in Nazareth would come around and even builders, you know, and they would come to to Sepphoris and there'd be like a big open market and people would run those markets. And that's how those fortunes were made. And we don't have Jesus doing any confrontation whatsoever in the nearby wealthy town of Sepphoris. And I'd say that's not a coincidence. It's a 100% pattern. All the confrontations about wealth, are uh, are south of um of the Judean line. None are north of Judea, of the Judean line. That means something. Mm.
0: Bradley, we haven't heard from you in a minute. This is probably the longest silence you've had in a hundred and thirty-six episodes. <laughs> I want no to hear your thoughts. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm because his I, son is listening and silently judging him. He's like, Dad, <laughs> Don't open, don't open that mouth of yours, man. <laughs>
3: And he's doubting. We he's, yeah. we have doubting Thomas. Doubting
1: comments over here. Doubting
3: Thomas. <laughs> I,
2: I I'm just really upset at Cody that I didn't know that we were doing this until today because I would have read your book. I told you something. Uh, maybe you did. Tell me
3: something. <laughs> Don't tell me. Whatever you tell a pastor on Sunday doesn't. <laughs> Thank <count>. you, Jerry. Right. But I
2: I mean I'm just I'm I'm intrigued. I, I'm going to buy your book today. Um, I, I, I'm really intrigued to to know this because I, I think I mean we we've kind of you know ventured out here a, a good ways in in just a few minutes, but the the thing that intrigues me the most is just your your interest in and your take on, you know, the how the gospels accentuate the humanity of Christ. Uh I mean I know we're kind of backing up to to that, but um it, I I I I I'm teaching through the gospel of Luke. I'm sort of new to expository teaching. I've only been doing it the last 7 years. <laughs> and so, I've taught through the gospel of Mark and and now just recently started teaching through the gospel of Luke. And I think Luke in particular, as well as Mark and Matthew, you know, there there are beautiful accounts of you know, you mentioned, you know, Jesus growing in wisdom and stature. Um, I think about the, his, his baptism where the, the phenomena of the Spirit descending on him, the heavens being opened, and a voice is heard saying, you are my son and you I'm well pleased. I think all of that, we, we tend to think of that as being for the benefit of the crowds or the onlookers that might have been there, but none of the Gospels, paint that picture. I think Matthew mentions that onlookers heard something that sounded like thunder, but those details, those specific phenomena, I think were for Jesus's benefit. I think he's connecting the dots and he's, he's, he's coming to understand, but not because he's set aside his divinity, but he did set aside his divine privileges right. and he's living from his humanity, not from his divinity, depending on the spirit. And, um, I, I just, that, you know, was really intriguing to me in the earlier part of our conversation today. But so is this, what you're saying about Galilee and about, um, you know, Judea. I mean, those are those are interesting tidbits that I'm I'm looking forward to diving into in your book.
3: Yeah, you know, that- uh, and, let, and let's look at that particular incident, right? Because there's also something social going on here, because John is from a higher economic and social status than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. He's the son of Elizabeth. Right. And Elizabeth's husband is, is one of the he's priest is a priest who's at least high enough up that uh, he's in the um tw- the, the circulating 24 yep. cycle that offers incense. So there's access to the temple. So this is not a family of equal status. Right. There's a part of the family that's in Judea. They, they're living in Judea. Right. When when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, she goes to the hill country of Judea. I'm not saying that they're like rich, but they're 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 like in the slums of Beverly Hills, right? They're, I mean, they're kind they're like <laughs> they're they're not the top class, but they're, they're they're at the bottom of the top class in some sense. So all of this this stuff going on with Mary, like we'd be sensitive to it now, right? I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, you guys are South Carolina. Is that is that what you said? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. You know. The geography is part of who we are. So I go and I speak in New York or Washington, DC, and I'm from Pittsburgh, I know something's going on there. Right. Um, and if, if you go and speak in New York or do something like that, the dynamics have a regional and class and status backdrop to them mm-hmm. that we would be very aware of. Right. Mm-hmm. There's there's like a northern contempt for the south, there's a coastal contempt for the, you know, for the industrial, you know, I felt that, right? So that's that's there, too. But what's happening is um, Elizabeth is acknowledging the switch in status that the mother of my Lord should come to me Hmm. when she's she's higher up. Right. Um, And in response to that, Mary sings a little song or does a little poem which talks about a reversal of, of status and role, economic role. Oh, I'm going to,
1: I'm going to interrupt you right here. The parallels you drew between the sermon on the Plains and the Magnificat were
3: just awesome. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It it, was a, it was a wonderful gift. And that might've been my wife who noticed that, or maybe she just helped me with it. I thought, Hey, these look really similar. And then she grid, she like put together a grid where it's, it's obvious that he's paralleling, you know, her teaching and, why wouldn't he? I mean, you learned. I mean, this is a home, this is probably a homeschooling society. How do I know that? We don't have any archaeological remains of schools, mm-hmm. you know, in Galilee. We haven't found any schools. There's been a lot of digging, but no schools. But we have found what they call ABC diaries, um, little McGuffey readers. Um, so, so they, we've dug up some McGuffey readers, but we haven't dug up any schools. So, you know, mom's teaching. Um, mom and dad are teaching. Dad's teaching the trade, probably mom's teaching, whatever. Um, so he would be influenced by her. So then with, with John the Baptist, there's a reversal. You know, I'm not fit to untie uh, his, his his shoelace in modern terms. Um, it's almost like what, what Elizabeth is saying, that you should come to my house, right? And when you go to someone's house, you untie their sandals. Mm-hmm. So it's like, Elizabeth was surprised that Mary, carrying Jesus, would come to her house, and John was surprised that Jesus would come to his house to be baptized. And then there's all this, like, punning going on in the Greek of John. I was first, but he comes after, but he's first. Um, So there's a whole lot of awareness that there's, like, a revolution going on, a social revolution going on, and that that, that this is who Yahweh decided to incarnate him.
2: Well, you you know, you mentioned... The, the, the difference in economic, potentially the, the difference in an economic status between Elizabeth, Zechariah, and Mary. And now when John comes of age and begins to preach, um, it, in Luke's account, I just talked through this, he you know, announces that Yahweh's coming um, and with him is coming judgment. And the, the response from the crowds is, what shall we do? um and he's he's preaching the baptism of repentance but when he announces you know judgment's coming and your Jewishness is not going to save you what shall we do then John and John respond or or three groups of people are mentioned in Luke the the multitude I don't know if you talk about this in the book but oh yeah the 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 multitudes of Jews uh the tax collectors and then the soldiers And they all ask, what shall we do? And John responds to them with an economic instruction. Yes. He tells the crowds, if you have two tunics, share. If you have extra food, share. He tells the tax collectors, stop collecting more than is due. And he tells the soldiers, stop extorting people for money with threats of violence and false accusations. Um, So John, in one sense, the, the good news he proclaims includes... A call to change the way you're handling your stuff.
3: Right absolutely. And then that the very same Greek word that John uses, don't defraud, um, is it, it comes up later in the discussion with um we have defraud defrauding mentioned with um Zacchaeus the tax collector and yep. with the rich young ruler. Mm-hmm. In this in this case, the parallels with Zacchaeus the tax collector. So it's obvious, you know, you know, John doesn't say, well, a few of you defraud. This is like a class is coming to him, the tax collectors and the soldiers who are their enforcers. The soldiers are the goons for the tax collectors. So that's why after when, when, when Jesus, uh, sorry, not Jesus, John, when his cousin John confronts the tax collectors, what happens next? He doesn't turn to the soldiers. The soldiers speak up. Yeah. Because if the tax collectors are crooked, you know, I'm the guy, I'm the arm breaker. You know, if, if Tony Soprano's crooked and I'm his enforcer, <laughs> That's right. what about me? You know, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just following orders, right? I'm okay. Oh, no, no, you can't falsely accuse. And it's exactly the same word that Jesus, that, that comes up in the conversation that Jesus has with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, if I have up a anyone, if yeah. I have defrauded anyone, uh, then I will pay back four times. Um, so it is emblematic of that class mm. um, to be defrauding that defrauding wasn't something like we have people who work for corporations and some people embezzle. Right. Mm-hmm. But embezzling was the business model here. <laughs> you know? right. It wasn't like a side gig or some people did it. It was an embezzling type system. Um, so that's what Jesus well, is running that.
2: And it, it's interesting to me that among the crowds listening to John, which we know John's ministry was, Incredibly widespread. There there had to be more professions among the crowds than tax collectors and soldiers. And there had to be more sinful behaviors represented among those multitudes than just being selfish, defrauding people, and extorting people. And yet, that's where John goes when the question's posed to him What shall we do? If Yahweh's coming and his winnowing fork is in his hand, what should we do? John goes right to defrauding.
3: He goes right to, this, he goes right to the sins of the ruling class, uh, of the Judean, Jerusalem-based ruling class. Because if Yahweh's coming, where is he coming? You know, the mm-hmm. Lord will suddenly come to his temple, come which is breakfast. not yippee. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. It's, hey, temple, you know, wake up. Yep. The Lord's going to come suddenly. Come to you, so he's very. I think he's very focused. The text makes the point that you have a lot of Judeans coming out there, right? He is in Judean territory. Yep. Um, he's not up north in Galilean territory. So, um, he's so he's confronting essentially the the Judean elite and their hangers-on because that's where Yahweh is going to come and judge. I mean, he comes. He finds the temple out of order. <laughs> Some people have made an argument, I think it makes sense that Jesus comes to the temple two times, because uh, in a, mm-hmm. if there's a leprous house, the priest comes and examines the leprous house twice to make sure that it's leprous before it's torn down. And the house was thoroughly leprous with theft. Um, the rich young ruler, you know, um, get, does, doesn't give up his treasure uh, for treasure in heaven. Thessaurus, that's the name for the treasure room in the temple. Uh, mm-hmm. The temple was a bank. The temple was a temple, it was a business, and it was a bank, but it was a crooked bank. It was used to get around the Shemitah, the debt forgiveness laws, um, um, and, it was, and And there was also there's so much here. The, the exchange rate was crooked, um, so um, I just did an article on this going into more detail. If you look at what's required um, in Exodus in terms of the atonement tax, the temple tax, and then you look at what's being paid in the mm-hmm. first century, twice as much silver is being paid. So the exchange rate, yep. you lose 50% of your value on the exchange rate. Um, and so is it any surprise that Jesus went after the money changers um, with such a crooked operation? And,
1: and specifically mentions and, in the text of the doves.
3: All right. So what does that mean? Go- Why does he go out? What's the importance of the doves?
1: because his family although not entirely and Cody this gets to a bullet point you you have on your notes here but yep. although not entirely uh slumming it obviously the the tecton is is a valuable trade at the same time not everyone could afford uh the the lambs for the sacrifice so there were uh uh, there were provisions made uh, for for pigeons or or turtle doves that would be the uh, the sacrifice of choice for for those in a lower uh, economic bracket, uh, such as him and his family when he was a kid. And when he sees the fleecing that occurs, and he turns the tables of the temples, the gospel accounts specifically mention the dove traders. Yes.
3: All of, all of them except Luke, which would make sense because Luke is writing for a largely Gentile audience, and they wouldn't have gotten the Torah mm-hmm. reference. So, you know, uh, the, the others, you know, mention this, that it's— it. The dove merchants are singled out. And I had this moment when I was doing this, and I'd looked at the gospel accounts, and then I went to John, and I started reading through, and it mentioned that he confronted them all, those who have, you know, um, cattle and sheep, probaton um, and doves. And I thought, okay, I had a nice theory. It didn't work. Um, and uh, so I just kind of give it up, because that's what you have to do when you have a biblical interpretation. You have to be able to give it up. And then I kept reading. And then it said, and to those who were selling doves, he said, so that the whole discourse is he's looking at the dove merchants while he's doing this. Now, whether John's cleansing of the temple is the same as the other, I mean, maybe he did it more than once. I don't know. It's early in John's gospel, but John isn't necessarily chronological. That's not the point. The point is that, that the the real only discourse we really have singled out, singled out the dove merchants who were the most economically exploitative. Because if you have a flat tax, and you raise it, if you have a flat tax, and you double it, who are you hurting the most? You're hurting the people who don't have a lot of excess capital. Mm. Um, And Mm. those would tend to be the people who are using doves. And Cody's right to point out, it doesn't mean poor. Um, The Torah doesn't say if you're poor, it just says if you can't get a lamb. Um, So it could be you just can't afford a lamb, because that's a lot. A lamb is a lot
1: yeah right. I mean, like like I don't know, it'd be hard to convince myself to go down to Costco and buy a, you know buy a, a lamb out of the freezer right now. you know like' it's, it's, you know I, I, can, I can relate.
3: It's expensive and there's <laughs> yeah, also an issue yeah, exactly. And there's also an issue with are they far from home? because like let's say you live near there and there's lambs, then you can get a lamb and take it to the temple. But if you have to travel 50 miles or 100 miles to the temple, you can't be bringing the lambs you know is a burden. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, also, they can't get a lamb because the lambs are double price. Right. Right. right? So maybe they right. would have been able to afford a lamb if but they it's didn't even have a-
1: further out of their reach. Yeah.
3: Right. The, 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 they, in, right. In other words, there's a little lamb monopoly there um, and there's a money monopoly and there's a 100 percent markup on the money exchange. And who knows what markup there might be on the lambs. So it could be that it's affordable Um, you know, uh, if everything wasn't crooked. uh, But 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 they couldn't get one for who knows what reason. But it definitely doesn't have to mean they're poor. And as we indicated, there's lots of reasons to believe they're not. I did a little analysis of where would a tecton typically be? Um, And I would say at the 90th percentile of income is kind of mid. If I really stretch and compare it to this other Mediterranean societies, which aren't quite so, you know, favorable towards artisans. I can get, I can get, I can get the Joseph and Foster son family maybe down to seventieth percentile of income, mm-hmm. but not thirtieth. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're well above average in their income, and and part of that is Herod's the great builder, so he's building all the time. So there was this exactly. huge shortage of carpenters. So Herod's out there like make people become carpenters. Um, It's like they're they're like grabbing people off the street who are unlabored and said, we'll teach you how to become carpenters and stonemasons because they needed so many because there was a shortage. So, you know, shortage of supply for carpenters that this would have been a good time to be a tecton.
0: Now, they're going back to the cleansing of the temple um, and all all the things surrounding that. I've been I've been bugging Bradley the last two years about. Like everything clicking about so much in the New Testament pointing toward judgment and the destruction uh, of Jerusalem in, in AD70, mm. uh, like the, the whole partial preterist position and all that kind of thing. And it, it's kind of been a hobby horse for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he totally agrees. Um, so talk a little bit about about that, where how much Jesus actually actually spoke uh, prophetically about that even.
3: Yeah, I think that um, our default position as evangelicals or um, born-again Christians or, you know, whatever you want to call Americans who believe in the infallibility of Scripture, um, we're, mm-hmm. we're in an identity crisis right now, so... Um, yeah, we don't know what term to use anymore. Yeah, we don't know, right, because some, some of it's been, you know, besmirched a bit. Um, uh, so, just Bible-believing people, um, you know, when I got saved, you know, in my late teens... I just had factory installed a certain view about the end times and Mm -hmm. about, you know, Jesus's commentary. Um, And so as I studied more and read Josephus and read Philo and read, you know, various scholars, it became pretty evident to me. N.T. Wright does a lot of this. I mean, Tom doesn't get everything that I'm talking about, um, but. Right. But um, there is something going on where there's a lot more warning to Jerusalem than I think we are wired to see. Hmm. Um, And so when Jesus says, don't cry for me, when he's on the way to the crucifixion, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves and for your children. This is what they do when the, when the wood is green, what will they do when the wood is dry? He's not talking about Israel becoming a state in 1948. um, And that in the future, they'll, you know, implant microchips in our head. He Hmm. says to your children, Right. Something's going to happen to you that will make what's about to happen to me look like something not to cry about. And I think that I I think that, you know, part of that is economic because the wood was in some sense wet. It was still a growing economy. The debt situation was not out of control. Um, But 40 years of I'm going to raise your taxes, I'm going to that you're not going to be able to pay your taxes. So I'm going to be the loan shark. I'm going to run the VIG. I won't, I won't cancel the VIG um, after seven years. I'll sell it to the temple. So the temple will run the VIG for as long as you're alive. Um, after 40 years of that, you have no. And then at the end, the temple is built. It's done 64, 65 AD, huge building program over something like 15,000 people are laid off. Um, and you have a you have a society that's debt, you know, completely em- em- enmeshed in debt and you just laid off a big chunk of your working class. So what, what happens? The, the terrorists burn down the House of Public Records to get rid of the debt records to gain favor with the mob. The middle class is gone and the middle class has always been the restraining influence in almost all societies. Um, so when you have the Arab Spring, what's really happening is the middle class had been wiped out by inflation. So so when the shopkeepers take to the street, you're in trouble, right? The shopkeepers, Mm. they don't, they, you know, shopkeepers are like, they got the shotgun, they're standing in front of the shop. They're not rioters. When your shopkeepers are rioters, you're, you got a big problem. And that's what had happened. Um, So there was no middle-class restraining things. So, like I said, you have a debt revolt, you have a, um, the tax revolt. um, And then Rome comes in and straightens things out and destroys that temple. Mm. That like that,
0: I could just nerd out on that for a minute.
1: <laughs> and we are back with our special guest, Jerry Boyer, author of *The Maker Versus the Takers*. Now, Cody, I interrupted you earlier. What were you? Uh, what were you starting to say before we took our break? This what I appreciate about this book. Not only does it connect
0: uh, so many dots. Um, within Scripture, but you're not a professional theologian by trade. You're not a pastor. You 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 introduced yourself, said you're a deacon, and you're a professional economist. Uh, so so people often will hear a uh, uh, a preacher exposit a text, and and you know he could exposit it well, and they could say, oh, well, that pastor has special insight, or they could. Just make something up, and we we've actually had a conversation about this recently. Oh well, he's the man of God, so I shouldn't question him. Yeah. But but what you've shown is that that from a lay perspective, you can actually access uh, this kind of information and in this kind of of depth, and really dig in on what Scripture says, and just go for it. Right?
3: Absolutely. I, I if 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 he didn't have a Bible works software. Um, I, I never did this book. I mean, yeah. the ability to just look and say, oh, okay, uh, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man's wearing purple and fine linen. Oh, let's look at the Greek. Ah, where do we find that, that exact phrasing before? Oh, it's in the Greek translation of the description of the garments of the high priest in Exodus. Hmm, something might be going on. But mm-hmm. the, 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 we live in this wonderful age I mean, it's just such a same that so many Christians they 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 think their spiritual duties just are going to watch Joel Osteen or something like that. Um, You know, there's (laughs) there's there's so much fluff, and there when there's so much treasure available now. Yeah, yeah. um, In terms of Greek, Hebrew resources, you don't even have to read the languages. Um, I mean, you can use there's online free stuff. I mean, I bought actually Bible Works was given as a. Review, um, but still, I mean, all right. So you can't afford two or three hundred dollars for Bible works. You can get eighty percent of that, or like forty or fifty percent of what you can get on Logos, just free on yep. the interwebs. And you can look up any Greek word. Say, where is that used? Is that used in the Septuagint? And you can um, you can find Josephus online. So when I see that Caiaphas uh, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, who here's the spoiler alert, he's not just any rich man. He's the high priest. Um, I can look in, uh, and remember that this rich man said, I send me back or send somebody back to warn my five brothers, five brothers. Hey, wait a minute. There's something there. Caiaphas had five brothers. Um, the high priest at the time had five brothers. He wore purple and fine linen. He feasted, celebrated twice a day, Lampos by lamp, literally in the temple. Um, and Abraham says, "Well, they have the law and the prophets, and they did. The high priestly family did have the law and the prophets. They didn't follow them, but they had them. Um, this is the high priest. Jesus is really he's taking a big risk here. He's going after the high priest. But if it weren't for these, if it weren't for these resources, I, so I can go to Josephus and Philo and a whole bunch of sources and see and search for five brothers, and I can't find anybody else who had five brothers in first century history other than Caiaphas." who married into a family that already had five sons uh, as a brother-in-law. Um so these resources um are incredible and I would just urge Christians to you you can do it, you know, you can get in there and be, you know you have so much more available to you than John Calvin had or mm-hmm. Martin Luther mm-hmm. and, yeah. and look what they did with that little bit. Yeah. Calvin like, Calvin published the
0: Institutes at Twenty nine or thirty? Is that right? Something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And and here
3: I am at thirty four. What? <laughs> and, be- and before then, I mean, you go back a hundred more than hundred years before Calvin. They didn't even have the Greek New Testament. Yeah. And you go and and really at that time they were just starting to get the Hebrew text. So basically, all of church history before that, they're dealing with a not very good Latin translation from from Jerome. Mm-hmm. Who was who? You know, wasn't very good at Hebrew. Was pretty good at Greek. Wasn't very good at Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're all dealing with a pretty weak translation, something that wouldn't pass a translation committee a standard today. So they did. Well, God bless them for their what they did with what they had. Absolutely. We have a thousand times as much.
0: So what? Yeah. can you- I t- I tell people all the time that uh, that you know you think you know, we think, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket all that kind of things. like, well, at the same time, you have a supercomputer in your pocket that is millions of times more powerful than what put man on the moon. You can get the gospel out or any derivative of gospel-centric messaging instantaneously to seven and a half billion people from a thing in your pocket. Um, one last question for you, uh, I guess a two-part question before we announce the winner of of this book giveaway, um, and this is the one that everybody was kind of throwing at me in our weekly posts. It was uh, obviously using anachronistic ter- terms, but one was Jesus a socialist, and two was Jesus a capitalist. <laughs> everybody wants to know that part.
3: Yeah, right. And that's <laughs> what I—I what I was worried about that. Um, yeah. Because I'm trying to—I'm not trying to turn Jesus into the armory for right. my political battles. Exactly. Right. Um, so, um, this is not a Jesus. This is not a Jesus isn't a socialist book. Right. Although I'm thoroughly convinced that Jesus was not a socialist. But the question is, what's our goal? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I, I I feel like the book mostly sells because people are looking for counter arguments to the evangelical left. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'll take this. You know. I'll take the sales. But what I really want us to do is just like fall in love with the historical Jesus and let him not just let him answer our questions, but let him tell us the questions to ask. Mm. But if we're bringing Mm. our question to the text, all right, what we have is a Jesus who is highly confrontational towards political power and never confrontational towards market power. Um, So if you want to tell me now he's, he's confrontational towards the corrupt use of, Political power for wealth extraction. Now, if you want to, if you want to bring me a socialist Jesus or a welfare state Jesus, you just need to tell me what's changed in human nature since then. Um, because if you if you want to say, well, yes, we can give the power and st- the state an enormous amount of power, and we won't be corrupt, I want you to tell me why we are going to be better than than the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were steeped in the Bible. So true. Um, mm-hmm. and had and and had an official Torah, which really limited their power, right? I mean, oh, in yeah. some case, first century Jerusalem is a best case scenario for the human race.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? A- again, it's like you know, you know, Tom Wright um says, What happens is the best religion and the best and the best uh, state um you know come together and crucify Jesus. What does that say about our best? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. right? So if, if we, as a secularized society, um, if we're going to give the state power, what do we really think we're going to do better than the Judean elite with the, with the guidance of Torah? Um, I don't think so. And I don't think human nature has changed. Um, so I think it's, it's a permanent thing. And that's why you kind of go backwards before the Gospels. You see a consistent theme in the Torah and in the prophets, which is that, Wealth extraction to, in the form of bribery is endemic to the ruling class. That you have a situation where Saul, they said, they're told Saul's going to take your money, he's going to give it to his friends, he's going to give it to his retinue, right? Mm-hmm. We're told in the Torah, what, what can't the king do? The king can't multiply wives. Yep. The king can't multiply, which is really about religious syncretism I and mean, sexual ethics, yes, but when you're multiplying wives and you're a king, those are alliances. The king can't multiply uh, chariots, no military industrial complex. You can defend yourself, but you're not going to go out there and try to, you know, uh, make the region a democracy or something like that. Um, So, the neoconservative agenda doesn't do so well, I think, in the Torah. And the king can't multiply gold. So, pretty consistently, the sin of kings, and going back to, you know, when Jethro tells tells, uh, Moses to appoint officers, political officers. What does he say? Men who fear God and hate dishonest gain. Mm-hmm. So it's a who pretty bribes, consistent yeah. philosophy that different people have different sins, right? There's sins that, you know, business people commit and there's sins that pastors commit and there's sins that, you know, lawyers commit and there's sins that, you know, commit, there's sins that rulers commit. Um, and the ruling uh, sin tends to be uh, taking bribes, you know, extracting wealth from people using political power.
0: Man, this is uh, this has been a fun episode. That's I think amazing, it's yep.
3: um Yeah, everybody, go buy
0: this book. Except for Landon Robin, because you're the winner of the book giveaway. So hit me up with your shipping address, and and we'll make it happen. Golf clap. Yep, golf clap. <laughs> um, Jerry, where? can we find uh, your art, your blog articles and all
3: that kind of stuff? And uh, where can they buy the book? Uh, the book is um, you know, on Amazon. Um, it's uh, distributed also by Simon and Schuster, uh, but Amazon's probably the best place to, uh, to get it. Um, and um, me, I'm easy to find on social media. Uh, mm-hmm. Just Boyer's B-O-W-Y-E-R. I, um, I do write articles. I'm the editor of town hall finance. If you heard of townhall.com, um, it's a conservative site. I edit the finance channel of that. Uh, so they could go there and look now they're going to get some of this, but they're also going to get some stuff like currency exchange rates, signaling something, or, I mean, they're good. You know, you're gonna have to look through the archive a little bit. If you're looking for the Bible stuff, it's all Bible stuff from my standpoint, right? right? When I'm doing quantitative analysis, I'm, I'm doing it from a Biblical point of view, but um, so I'd say about a half of the material there is going to be explicitly biblical exegesis, and the other half is just going to be applying that in my own life as an economist. So, so nothing but uh, but pushing GameStop and Dogecoin. Right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, Jerry, thanks a lot for your time. Absolutely, uh, and and we and this I, was th-
1: this was such a privilege.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Uh, John, sign us off so
1: I don't stumble over uh, the bookends again. Oh Well, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to like the show and subscribe. Remember that you can support the show on Anchor.fm, even if it's just a dollar a month. Be sure to leave us a review. We don't care if it's honest, but we would love the five stars regardless. uh yeah man. <laughs> I you know I don't So that
3: remember. was the professional sign off? Like, Easy Cherry that Cody, Easy. Cody handed <laughs> off the outro to the to the <laughs> audio pro at the uh, uh
1: yeah, see, the thing is, is I can edit that out. I, I won't because, I because there's people who I think turn my, my awkward silences on the recordings into a drinking game or something. Matt Paraguay <laughs> looking at you. Uh, but thank you so much for listening, Jerry. Again, it was a pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, for, uh, for Cody, for Bradley, Bradley's son, and Jerry, I'm John. Thank you so much for listening.